Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today episode 125 of the bowery boys an evening at sardi's hey it's the bowery boys hey the bowery boys is brought to you by eurocheapo.com eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in europe now with hotels in new york city on the web at eurocheapo.com Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. 125 episodes Can you of the Bowery it, Boys, or you know, most of those available to listen to. This is our Quas Quicentennial episode. I've just well read done. that I just read that off of my the screen of my <laughs> phone because I, I I could not remember that word. But this is our 125th episode. We're very glad to be here. And we thought we'd do something a little more, you know, casual for this one. Casual. I feel like we're dressed up. I mean, here we are in our black tie. Well, we are returning to Times Square, which was the subject of a very popular podcast we did just a few months ago. Fade the edges of the lens here and focus in as we tell the story of a misty world of starlets and furs and powerful producers puffing away at their cigars, because we are going to one of the most famous restaurants in New York City history. That would be Sardi's Restaurant. This is a restaurant that has grown to really exemplify Broadway. This is no ordinary restaurant in the theater district. It's a place of great mythology. It's associated with a lot of huge, major stars of the 20th century. What's funny, Greg, is in this podcast, I really don't know how much time we'll be spending talking about the food at Sardi's. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with the food, but it's just never really been about the food. It's, uh, it's serviceable. Let me just put it this way. This podcast is going to have so much black ink from all the bold-faced <laughs> names that we'll be talking about that you're going to have to wash your hands afterwards. So take a seat as we serve up a history of Sardi's Restaurant. Small and, me, and baby makes three. We're happy in my 
Well, Tom, that charming tune, you probably are familiar with it. It's called Mind Blue Heaven. The reason I played it for this podcast is it was the number one song on the Billboard charts in 1927, the same year that Sardis was open. And that particular version, which you just heard, is conducted by the legendary band leader Paul Whiteman, who figures in a little bit into the story I'm about to tell in just a few minutes. Wow, that's a lot to take in. So <laughs> shall we pull back here? Could you perhaps situate us in, in terms of what Sardis sure, is and sure. where we are? Let me preface everyone by saying that we are not paid by Sardis. Sardis <laughs> has not given us any money for this podcast. No, and in fact, in order to do a little research, we dined at Sardis this past weekend, and we certainly paid our own bill. Uh, we shut it down. We, we did. We, in <laughs> fact, were the last table standing. But it was research. Now, the current location of Sardi's, the dates back to 1927, is at 234 West 44th Street. It's at the physical and most would say the spiritual heart of the theater district. It's surrounded by Broadway theaters. To the east is the Discovery Theater. It's a new theater that has a bunch of like dramatic exhibits like King Tut and everything. Uh And next to that is the Bullmore Lanes, a bowling alley. In fact, when I walked up to Sardis uh, to meet everybody, there was an individual dressed as a bowling pin who passed me a flyer. I'm, hmm. I'm not the experience they had in the old days. No, this is really the new Times Square, but right across the street from Sardis is the Schubert Theater. Right. It is indeed at the southern end of the Schubert Alley. It's an alley that separates these two old theaters that are still there. That would be the Schubert, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. and the Booth Theater separated that from the old Hotel Astor. I think you remember that from our Times Square podcast. It's no longer there, of course. This is a very star-studded, historical, and glamorous place we're going to end the story at. But we need to start the stories elsewhere. Rewind the clock back to November 21st, 1907. This happens to be one of the very greatest peak years of immigrants coming into the United States. So on that day at Ellis Island, a young man came in, a man by the name of Melchior Pio Vincenzo Sardi. He was born in 1885 in the Piedmont region of northern northern Italy. He Wonderful was, ones. He was a, let's just say, a restless boy. In fact, in his biography that he wrote when he was an older man. And which you found through the New York Public Library. Yes, and I read. I'll mention a little bit more about that later. He actually has a whole chapter called Il Vagabondo. Um, he didn't stay still for very long. As a teen, he lived for a time in London. While he was there, he worked in the kitchens of the theater district and became very enamored with theater and, more importantly, with theatrical stars. And even as a teenager, became very comfortable around the people of the show. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so it was in 1907 that he actually struck out for America with his brother to make a fortune and to hopefully emulate this kind of thing in America where it seemed, at least at that period of time, that there was a greater opportunity for someone like him. When he got here, he instantly went to work. I would say that Vincent Sardi made his name the old-fashioned way by earning it, working right up from the bottom straight to the top, from the back of the kitchen right out to the front. It also helps that he came to New York right around the early days of Times Square, of the glamorous lobster palaces, a thriving nightlife scene of Midtown. Sardi worked almost exclusively, in fact, in Midtown locations in the 1910s and 1920s. Some of his earliest jobs would be, for instance, the two lobster palaces, well-known lobster palaces, Rector's and Sherry's. He worked at both of them. 
a great place. Sounds really fantastic. Called Montmartre, oh, which yes. is the glitter, a glittery rooftop nightclub that's at the Winter Garden, which is a theater that's on still the exists. roof. It was the rooftop restaurant. Right? Yes, exactly. Most notably, he also worked at a rather fancy-sounding place called the Palais Royal. They like French names, don't they? Yeah. The Palais Royal was a ballroom that was owned by conductor and soon-to-be close friend Paul Whiteman, the conductor. May I just throw in here that he also, in the meantime, took a bride, getting married to his lovely Eugenia, who went by Jenny, on June 19th, 1911. Can you believe it? It was about 100 years ago. 100 years ago from the recording of our podcast. And he actually met her at one of uh, at another job that he had, this place called the Bartholdi Inn, that was a 45th and Broadway, so not very far from where Sardi's soon would be. And this was actually a boarding house with a restaurant in it and attracted a lot of early silent film stars. People like Mary Pickford and D.W. Griffith would dine here and sometimes stay here. And he would meet them. And slowly through all of these places that he worked, he really racked up a lot of connections. I Absolutely. Mean, you know. So after working many, many years in all these different restaurants, he finally decides to break into the restaurant business himself. I mean, he's got this incredible resume. So a friend of his by the name of Mario Cremona in 1921, he actually had a restaurant, Mario's, at 246 West 44th Street. This is very close to where the current Sardis is. It's west just over a couple of buildings. Closer to 8th Avenue. Yes, correct. So they bought the joint. And they called the place the Little Restaurant, not because it was small, and it was small, but it was called the Little Restaurant because it was right next door to a theater called the Little Theater. So after you went Uh to the Little Theater, you grabbed a bite to eat at the Little Restaurant. Now, this first Sardi's was a very modest place. It only sat about 40 people. It's weird because it had an outdoor garden cafe area. I mean, could you? It's hard to even imagine a restaurant in Times Square having this kind of right. Little well, thing. because I think these buildings were also so different back then. Mm-hmm. There were brownstones mixed right in with these other theaters. Yeah, inside it was adorned with green walls and a country vista that was painted upon them. The Sardis actually lived upstairs from the restaurant. And they even had a little garden out back. He got along so famously with his customers that he'd play a little prank where they he would run up to the third floor and turn on a hose <gasps> so the water would spray out onto the diners in the back. And because they couldn't quite tell what the weather was, they all thought it was raining. I mean, I think that's sort of a, a rather cruel trick to play. This was but... <laughs> the restaurateur himself or his or his child? Oh, this was him. Yeah, this what? is him himself. This is just what, what they did. What a likable guy. <laughs> exactly. You know? Doesn't that sound fun? Except, no, you know. He embodies a joie de vivre. Right. The restaurant was not initially a success, but due to these early connections, like Paul Whiteman, I mean, sure. if you know one of the greatest conductors in the city, even in his early days, stars like Sinclair Lewis, Lillian Gish would come, wow. you know, for a bite to eat. Now... Why aren't they there anymore? Because they're unfortunately caught in the web of the battle between these major theatrical production dynasties. Uh, uh, There were two major theatrical producing teams at the time. There were the Schuberts, Mm -hmm. and there was Claw and Erlinger, also called the Syndicate. Now... Unfortunately, this particular building that Sardis was housed in was owned by the Astor family, and the Astors sold the building to Erlinger. And we should note that these producing teams were not just producing. They also owned theaters. They were massive property owners, of course. Right, right. and so they were controlling which shows they chose to produce and which shows would even be mounted on Broadway. So Erlinger ripped down the restaurant, ripped down the whole building, and built a new theater, which became 
the St. James Theater, which uh-huh. is still there. In fact, uh, many of we you... We saw Nell Carter perform. <laughs> <laughs> many of you may, may have seen American Idiot performed there, and Harold is performing there in July. So that building is still very much around. So if you ever see a show there, look up on the stage and think, hmm, that's the original Sardis. However, the Schubert brothers were actually big fans of the Sardi restaurant and didn't necessarily want to see them go out of business. So they moved Sardi's into a new place just two doors down, a far larger place, of course. Although, Greg, it was not originally going to be that much bigger. In fact, it was just going to be a three-store building where the restaurant would be on the bottom, they could live on the second floor, and the Schubert's could have their offices on the third floor. So imagine a three-story building across from today's Schubert Theater. Well, the plans kept getting stretched out. A second-floor dining room was added, and many floors of offices were added along with a top-floor penthouse for J.J. Schubert. So so the thing just sort of exploded up to an 11-story building that's there today. So, like anything that's on Broadway, it became flamboyant and over-the-top. Especially anything in Broadway of 1927, Mm -hmm. which was the year that the new Sardis opened. And the Broadway of 1927 was a great place to be. That was the year of showboat. Theater habits were different. There were, you know, there was an opening every day on Broadway and people were going out regularly to the theater as one goes to the movies today. You can just imagine a city that was filled with actors and playwrights and directors and press agents and men of the theater. There were also 14 daily papers at the time, and each of them had its own drama critic. So there was a lot of dramatic activity. So where were they all going to coalesce during their downtime? At the Algonquin. (laughs) At first. And some, of course, did. But when Sardis opened in 1927 in its new location, a group of theater press agents and drama critics started meeting at Sardis every day for lunch. You know, those really were the days when you could meet for a daily lunch day. (laughs) And they called themselves the Cheese Club, which was sort of a counterpoint to the roundtable meetings over at the Algonquin. So they would sit around, eat gossip, and talk show business. And they might also broker deals, you know, stars to plug in each other's productions and each other's columns. These were influential people. For instance, they would sort of latch on to some creative young individual and sort of pass them around, if you will. They certainly could. Well, perhaps the chief cheese, the head cheese, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) was Broadway columnist Walter Winchell, who was the most famous Broadway gossip columnist of them all. He was writing columns and doing a radio show listened to by millions. His columns ran from 1928 until 1960, and they were syndicated as well into over 1,000 papers. He was not really well-loved by Broadway producers. In fact, the Schubert brothers wouldn't even let him into opening nights, which was fine with him because he snapped back, that's fine, I can always go to the second night and see the thing close. (laughs) Now, he's usually associated, if you remember the movie, uh, The Sweet Smell of Success. Of course. There's a character that is based on Walter Winchell in that film. He's often associated with the Stork Club, which was an elegant nightclub. But he, at the beginning of his career, he did sort of camp out here at Sardis. This group was also extremely helpful in getting Sardis on the map. Take Winchell. He wrote about it frequently. He dropped the name Sardis into his columns, transforming it into something that was nationally known and recognized. 
millions of Americans read his columns and just started equating the name Sardis with glamour and theater. So they're sitting there and eating. They're not having cocktails, though, right? No. This is prohibition. This is prohibition, and Sardis would not officially serve alcohol until the repeal of prohibition, although it should be noted that they weren't against alcohol, per se. They weren't teetotalers. Mm -hmm. And as Vincent Sardi Jr. points out in his book, Off the Wall at Sardis, Mm -hmm. regular customers, favored clients, might find a little special sauce in their coffee at the end of the meal. Oh, yeah, a special cup of coffee that That just perks up a a dinner. And as he noted, that special cup of coffee that had been brewed in a bathtub in Hell's Kitchen. Ah, So one day, one of the Cheese Club regulars brought a Russian refugee named Alex Kremkov to Sardis to have lunch with the whole group. Now, this Alexis Kremkov had been born in Kazan, Russia in 1900. After World War I, he fled Russia and landed in Paris. Among other things, he did caricatures for the paper Le Matin. He published these caricatures under the name Garde, with an E at the end, as in Ungard. Ungard. Yes, very patriotic. Mm -hmm. But they had a little typo, and they just published his name Gard, G-A-R-D. He moved to New York, and he went with this new name, Gard. Yeah, like a stage name. And he was with men of the theater, they understood. And so there he was at the Cheese Club table in 1927. And at that first meeting, he, didn't, he wasn't really that talkative. There were some communications issues. But of course, he just started sketching portraits of everybody at the lunch. And Vincent Sardi Sr. saw them and was so impressed by them that he just tacked them right up to the wall around the table of the Cheese Club. Sardi had seen other restaurants do this as a sort of an example. I believe there was one in Paris, yes, right? Yes, Zelly's in Paris, which also put up caricatures of theater folk. Right, so he must have had this in the back of his sure, mind. Sure, he thought, well, if Zelly's can do it, why can't we? When it was obvious that this would work for all parties involved, and here Gard was, you know, literally a starving artist in New York, they drew up a contract which stated that Alex Gard would draw subjects that both of the men agreed upon, and in exchange for the portraits, Gard and a guest would be offered either lunch or dinner every day of the week. Close Monday. (laughs) Sardi was not permitted to complain about Gard's portraits, and Gard was not permitted to complain about Sardi's food. He won't take any criticism of any of these works, even from the people who is illustrating? Oh, especially from them. I mean, you've seen these portraits, right? (laughs) They're very very severe. He became known as the man who put the big noses on people. Mm -hmm. And this contract was signed on September 19th, 1927. So the year that Sardi's opened. So really, from the beginning, these characters have been a part of Sardi's history. Start adorning the place, so these red walls, right? Right. No, he would sit down with his subjects. He would sketch them right in the spot, in their banquet, at their table. He would sketch them, show them the sketch, and have them sign it in ink on the spot. Then he'd take it home, and he would like work the pencil, and then he would ink it himself, and then he would lay in the color, dunk it in his bathtub, dry it out, and repeat that process until the color was just right. So if you look at those portraits, you see that, yeah, the color is kind of a wash. It's, it's very interesting. And so it's all very planned. But, uh, oh, absolutely. Almost like they were developed, like color film. And then the portrait would be hung right on the wall. Not permanently, because the contract that was signed with 
the Schubert organization stated that anything that was affixed to the wall permanently would be property of the Schubert organization. So, of course, very clever. Just so, just you can just take them down at any time. So, Sardi Senior decided right, just hang them there on the wall, which meant that some of these things over the years became, shall we say, missing. You know, another aspect of not having the the portraits actually affixed to the wall was that they're movable. And Sardi's over the years has moved the portraits depending on what show is running, what actors are in New York working on whichever show. Who's popular, whose who's, career is in the dumps. Exactly. Because sometimes, you know, there's a fresh new thing that they can't wait to get a new portrait of, and then this person disappears or peters out. So they can move the hottest portraits up front, especially for people who are in current shows. The portraits that you see today are actually replicas. And when the portraits are done, two copies are made. One is given to the subject, the other is hung on the wall, and the original is locked up in a vault. But of course, in order for Gard to have caricatures, he had to have characters <laughs> to come in. Well, ever since the opening, because of course of all of Sardi's connections, you know, some of, a lot of these actors and producers who went to the old place just came over to the new place. And of course, since there's even more stars and producers and writers, and there's more places to seat them, the place quickly became quite famous. Now, it's interesting, though, I talk about lots of space, but the most popular part very early on was this little tiny bar that sat right next to the stairs and it was appropriately enough called the little bar it was almost immediately taken up by a small little group of actors like a little click a a little click if you will of hard drinking broadway and hollywood actors and we should mention this is after prohibition oh i'm sorry yes by this time uh, it's a little bit after this is 1931 1932 uh we have like rex harrison Mm. as part of this little group Tom Ewell, who is a, a name I'm not familiar with, but he's in the movie The Seven Year Itch and, oh, yes. the, and, the original, and the original Broadway production of that. But they had all these actors come in. What about the normal people? Like, what got normal people to? Because eventually he's going to have to have theater goers eat here or else he's not going to make any money. Now, he claims, according to Sardi's biography, that the tipping point here, he didn't use the phrase tipping point. That's my <laughs> words. Or Gladwell's. <laughs> Yes, exactly. According to him, it's specifically because of a 1938 production of Hamlet, and more specifically because of a playbill that was distributed at Hamlet. So an actor by the name of Maurice Evans decided to stage a Hamlet here on Broadway. It's happened many times on Broadway. Nothing new about that. But what's new about this one is it would be the uncut, complete version of Hamlet, which had never been staged in New York before ever. This is 1938. It's so long, it went from 6.30 to 10.30. Right. That they, in fact, would have a dinner-length intermission. So in the playbill, there was a gigantic advertisement that had, was, had a personal quote from Maurice Evans saying, Why don't you go over and eat at Sardi's? By the way, I know Evans is not a familiar name, but some of you may know him as portraying the ape scientist Dr. Zayas in Planet of the Apes. Of That's course. <laughs> Best-known role. Did you know that they actually called that sp- Special dinner, the quote, Hamlet Supper. <laughs> Did it have like mutton? Like what was served <laughs> on those plates? Ham loaf. <laughs> oh, no. Sardi's immediately became associated with opening nights. After the show, whole casts would come to Sardi's and they would sit nervously in one of the banquettes. 
and wait for the reviews to come in because back in the day, the the next day's newspaper would actually come out the first edition at like 10, wow. 30, 11 o'clock at night. And because the New York Times is right there, like Sardi would get the very first copy. I think they'd even send over the first 25 copies printed of the Times and the Herald Tribune straight to Sardi's. And so, of course, the whole mood of the room would change depending on those reviews. You know, and then because it's early enough that if the reviews were really, really good, they would everyone would celebrate and they'd spend lots of money, pop all the champagne, and you know, stay up until the end of the evening. Ah, the good nights. But if the reviews were bad, everyone would slowly slink out of the restaurant and the lights would dim by one AM. No one would want to stay around. Maybe that was our problem when we were there the other <laughs> night. Was there some, were there some bad reviews? Did we have bad reviews? When the main star of these shows would come in, they would be greeted by ovations. And this, this tradition started in 1940 with the actress Shirley Booth uh, from the show Come Back Little Sheba. Occasionally, Sardis would appear on stage, like with the poorly reviewed show Bright Lights of 1944, uh, with an entire act set in Sardis that literally didn't even last a week. But mostly, <laughs> Sardis, but mostly shows were created at Sardis. For decades, there would be virtual offices all around this of agents and producers and writers. The politicians would be here, like presidents, mayors. J. Edgar Hoover ate here. Theater people, the show folk, would be given preferential treatment. It's true. They would be an actor's menu, a very exclusive menu of different prices, strictly for people who maybe didn't make a lot of money because they were just hoofing it. Well, did you have to be a starving actor to to order off the acting menu? Well, there's a, it was at the discretion of the owner. In fact, during the 1970s, there was a producer who demanded the actor's menu, and Vincent Sardi Jr. threw him out of the restaurant. And then that producer sued Sardi's, claiming that he had lost a, an amount of business because he wasn't able to conduct some of his interviews in Sardi's. Well, I mean, wow. that, that did he win the lawsuit? No, I mean, it was thrown out of court, obviously. But it goes to show you as an example that it was really up to Sardi's of what menu he would show you. But some couldn't even afford the actor's menu. I mean, sometimes he fed them for free. For instance, a struggling young star by the name of Jimmy Cagney would come in and eat bowls of soup for free on Sardi's dime. And and Sardi's senior uh, lost a great amount of money off of these special discounts and the tabs that he ran for his friends, the actors. And just to pause here, Greg, because I just caught myself spewing what could be interpreted as Sardi's propaganda. But this is not a commercial podcast. No, it's not. We are simply telling the story of something that is a New York institution. It's just a little confusing because it is a commercial enterprise. It's still open in New York City. And of course, anybody can go, as we did this past weekend, and spend their hard-earned dollars there. But it is quite different today, which we will explain. For instance, they do not have a gorgeous hat check girl by the name of Renee Carroll. That is true. Renee Carroll was the daughter of an Orthodox rabbi in the Lower East Side, born in the early part of the century. <laughs> We're I, not for sure when. We, <laughs> <laughs> born sometime in this new century. Ages have browned the pages. We don't know <laughs> when exactly. But we do know that later on, the family migrated uptown to 115th Street and encouraged her to become a lawyer. 
Uh, but she didn't think that many men would listen to a woman unless she had her legs crossed. So she started off on her own. You see, Renee Carroll was one sassy broad. <laughs> she was a red-headed beauty, and she knew it. She joined Sardi's actually the year that the new restaurant opened in 1927 and worked there for decades. In fact, she became, quote, the most famous hat check girl in America. Well, it's true. I don't know any other hat check girls. No, none are, you know, roll off the tongue. No, exactly. She was famously uh, wisecracking and smart-alecky. And she ended up being as much of a character as anyone on any of the stages surrounding Sardis. Well, because, because, Greg, she checked more than just hats and coats. She also would receive scripts. So producers and directors and leading men would drop off scripts with her, and while they were dining... She would actually read through them, make notes, and then at the end of their meal, when they picked up their hat, she would tell them whether or not she thought the play was any good, whether or not they should invest in it or take a part in it. So she really did have something to do with the course of Broadway mm-hmm. history. Full-service hat checkery. <laughs> right, and, and she made a quarter a hat, but she was actually making lots and lots of connections. By the end of her tenure at Sardi's, she was actually investing in shows. She owned real estate. She had produced several shows, and she was married to one of the biggest ticket agents on Broadway. Just going to show you what some confidence in any kind of a job will take you. Now, unfortunately, the memory of Renee Carroll has faded for a lot of people, but there is another prominent female figure that frequently came to Sardi's that has left more of a lasting impression on the theater world. And her name was Antoinette Perry. In 1928, she became one of Broadway's first female directors, directed and produced such hits as Harvey and Strictly Dishonorable, along with Brock Pemberton, her partner in both business and romance. Brock and Antoinette. (laughs) It's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, During World War II, she helped found the American Theater Wing. So she was a a great woman of the theater. She frequented Sardis along with her partner, Brock. So in 1946, when she died of a heart attack during a production of Harvey on Broadway, the members of the Theater Wing decided that they needed to do something to commemorate her and her legacy and what she really meant to theater. Many say it was Brock Pemberton's idea. Uh, Sardi Jr. writes that it was John Golden, while he was having lunch at Sardi's, who came up with this idea of this special award called the Antoinette Perry Awards for Excellence in Theater. Of course, Antoinette was shortened right down to To the Tonys. And the Tonys were first given in 1947. For many years, uh, the the nominations were announced at Sardi's, which was a big day for everybody because the TV cameras would be there covering it live. You can still watch it live mm-hmm. today. It's not always at Sardi's, but they, they, when it is at Sardi's, they put up a little stage, push the tables aside, have some, you know, stars, Patti Lapone, Matthew Broderick sure. standing there with the TV cameras and make the announcements. But in 1947, those first awards went to people who were regulars as well of Sardis, Helen Hayes, Elia Kazan, Ingrid Bergman, Patricia Neal. And they they gave a special award as well to Vincent Sardi Sr. and his wife for their services to the theater community. So they actually won a Tony the first year of the Tony Awards. They won a Tony, and their son, 
Jr. would receive one 20 years later. So we've sort of meandered about the years here, giving various historical factoids. Um, Dropping names. Why don't I take us on a little tour of what it might be like to go to Sardi's in, say, the early 40s, late 30s. I'm not going to be age-specific. Like many of the actresses here, I'm not going to be age-specific. <laughs> Don't date us. Um, just during this time period, what it might be like to go into Sardis. Now, of course, just even pulling up might be kind of difficult during pre-theater with all the traffic. There's limousines alongside here. For instance, Mayor Jimmy Walker might be pulled up mm. here in his limousine waiting for his girlfriend, future wife, Betty Compton. Mm. As Who she might be appearing in a show. In a show right next to it. There might be a young woman that you might have to push aside as she sells little show business magazine. This young woman who later would become Lauren Bacall. Ooh. Now, the first floor is all dining. The second floor is another dining room. They sometimes call it Siberia, and there's even a, a bar up there as well. And there's even dining rooms on the third and fourth floor called the Belasco Room and the Eugenia Room. Those are for private dining receptions. We're going to stick on just the first floor for this little tour. Now, when you walk in today, the little bar is on your left. But in the early days, it was actually on the right, and it was far smaller. Today's little bar ain't necessarily so little. So today, the bar is on the left. Right, The restaurant is right in front of you, as is the stairway to the second floor. And to the right is today's coat check, which there is no Renee Carroll, but you can buy yourself a nice, snazzy Sardis t-shirt. Now, you can sit over to the little bar and wait for your party to arrive. You might, perhaps you'd want to order something called the Cherry Point Cocktail. I'm not even sure if they still order this. You should ask a bartender. It was actually named after Vincent Sardi Jr. In fact, the, he was in the Marines, and he was stationed at a place called Cherry Point in North Carolina. So during the war, his father named a cocktail after him, Cherry Point Cocktail. So you order one of those. And during the war, his father would hand out one of these for free to any Marine... <laughs> Not Navy, who walked in the door. Oh. Now you look in, this is pre-theater, it's totally packed, but thank goodness you have reservations. So the maitre d' welcomes you in, you get sat down to your table. Now today, when you go in, it's mostly tourists. In fact, 99.9% tourists. But back in the heyday, I mean, there really were a lot of people who were connected in the theater industry. As you make your way to your seat, you might see over on the left, you might see... Betty Davis taking a drag on a cigarette over to the right. You might see Marilyn Monroe, the press agent. If it's the late 30s, you might see a more difficult celebrity like John Barrymore, who demanded to have a private table and demanded several private waiters to take care of him because he was so demanding. Legend has it that he was quite particular not about the food, but about the drink. I believe you mentioned a man by the name of John Golden. He was there all the time. Probably the most frequented guest at Sardi's. Um, he was a theatrical producer. He'd actually worked his way up from Niblo's Garden in oh. his youth and be to become a major Broadway producer. A frequent guest of Mr. Golden across the table from him would often be Eleanor Roosevelt. And she would have lunches here sometimes and write them up in her column in the New York Post. Not only would you see famous celebrities around here, you might see clubs of celebrities or rather regular gatherings of theatrical people who would meet here for all sorts of shenanigans. For instance, you might see a group of people called the Gloat Club, which was a group of creative folks who would 
at one time in their careers, toiled over a very difficult musical. This was in the years before 1943. Many didn't believe that this musical was going to work. It seemed very ridiculous, and they were hard to get financing. So the creators here, Oscar Hammerstein II, Richard Rogers, and choreographer Agnes DeMille, well, they pulled it all together anyway. And in 1943, they opened their show, Oklahoma. So, of course, obviously, it became a monster head. So they would come back to Sardis to gloat over those who, you know, had refused to give them any support. Or invest. Or to invest with them. So they ended up meeting all the time and calling it the Gloat Club. And during that period of time, Rodgers and Hammerstein actually created other shows while they sat and here like, them, and yes. brainstormed. Occasionally, you would have non-human beings eating here. All these inside jokes of pranks between clowning actors. For instance, you would have the old vaudevillian by the name of Ted Healy, who was best known for putting together the Three Stooges. Of course, yes. Um, he once brought an orangutan in and, quote, it sat down and ate lunch like a human being. Those were before the letter ratings in New York City restaurants. <laughs> I don't the, think they would have gotten a, <laughs> an A for that. Yeah, I don't think the Department of Health and Hygiene would have looked kindly <laughs> upon an orangutan <laughs> eating a bunch of soup. Now you're finally sat down to your table, surrounded by all these people, and you're not an actor. Mm. You're just a regular tourist. Ordering off the menu, the regular menu. Yes. They do have one signature dish that was created by Eugenia, um, the cannelloni. You can still order it, of course. You can get the famous baked Alaska. Other dishes that one might enjoy in the 1940s on the menu uh, include the asparagus milanese, chicken alisardi, pickled butterfish, Chicken livers, Madeira, various souffles, various mignons, you know these menus. Flambes. And of course, if you need to go to the bathroom, that's upstairs on the second floor. We were talking about whether or not they served alcohol during Prohibition, and it should be noted that Vincent Sardi Sr. was never comfortable with watching his guests get liquored up. Mm -hmm. It was... In something that was actually really upsetting to him, even after the repeal of Prohibition and, and the little bar opening, he really hated to see people of the theater get drunk. In fact, he'd walk outside, take right. a walk and get some fresh air because he just couldn't be around it. Though he did tolerate, you know, some of the world's great drinkers. The previous mentioned John Barrymore. John Barrymore. And then, of course, Tallulah Bankhead. Everybody had a Tallulah Bankhead story. My favorite was one that Sardi tells in his book of Tallulah being in a bathroom stall upstairs when she realized that she had run out of toilet paper. And she knocked on the wall of the stall and said to the lady in the next stall, Pardon me, darling, but do you happen to have any toilet paper over there? And the woman in the next stall said, No, I'm sorry, I'm out. And she said, Hmm. Well, darling, in that case, do you have two fives for a ten? <laughs> Talk about uh, some charmin. <laughs> She was a shamaner. Well, needle- uh, well, needless yeah. to say, that's the end of the tour. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I really, I didn't mean to take it there, Greg. Where were we? We were upstairs in the back. Well, we're now actually up to the 40s. And this is when Vincent's son, Vincent Sardi Jr. took over. Yes, Vincent Sardi Jr. was actually born July 23rd, 1915. He was raised in the restaurant. And so, yes, in 1947, he did buy the restaurant from his father when he retired, and he'd run it for about 50 years. Well, he, he became a, a celebrity in his own right. You know, I'm sure he met all sorts of people. He grew up with the theater stars and producers and directors from 1927 right up to the year 2000. Mm-hmm. 
And these stars were so faithful to Sardi's. Carol Channing, for example, said, My family has had birthday and wedding parties at Sardi's for years. I plan on having my funeral here. One note about the caricatures, because we talked about Gard and how he did hundreds of caricatures. Mm-hmm. He died in 1948, and so there was a period afterwards where there were no new caricatures being done. That was a year after Vincent took over from his father. He thought maybe this era of the caricatures had passed. However, people kept urging him to get back into the caricature business to hang new stars up because every year that passed, new shows opened, new stars came to town, and Sardis was seeming a little bit dated, like it was a museum or something. Well, yeah, a bunch of old celebrities, and I mean, there's a new batch coming through. Plus, by the 1950s, I mean, this was the heyday of the Broadway musical, plus all these new TV stars in this new industry that was happening in New York. And theater does not have the same kind of thing. Film stars have the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Like, right. there is not anything like that other than Sardis. So enter Donald Beaven. Don Beaven came in. He made one caricature per month. And he, he really studied the actors. He'd watch them rehearse. He looked at their press photos. He hung out in their dressing rooms. He really got to know them. He sketched them. Many of the most famous caricatures are Don Beavens. He signs them very easily with a Beaven at the bottom, so you'll see them. And in 1974, a man named Richard Barretts took over from Don and he had been working as a banknote engraver. So his trademark style is with all of those very tight parallel lines, like would be on a dollar like bill. A coin, or a, right, a coin. Or on a paper bill. One that Miss Bankhead might use, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> well, look for the tiny lines and the cross hatching, mm-hmm. and you know you're looking at a Richard Barrett. Now, Sardis was never on television, although Vincent Sardi Jr. was on What's My Line in the 1950s, oh, the game show. But it did hit the radio waves for a while. It had their own show that was broadcast from the second floor called Luncheon at Sardis. Absolutely. From 1947 through the 1990s, it was broadcast live on WOR radio. And the host would wander around that second floor dining room where celebrities were gathered and luncheoning together. Well, it's amazing that, like, yeah, it wasn't a stationary micro phone as we sometimes when we think of like these radio recording scenes during right. this period but no they it was a wandering microphone they went from table to table with the clinking of glasses oh, and the conversation the like you know the, this kind of thing going on <laughs> and by the late 50s the restaurant was a cash cow it was taking in over a million dollars a year and so vincent decided to open up an outpost over on the east side to expand and open up sardi's east which was located at 123 east 54th street the restaurant opened in 1958 however vincent had a big obstacle if sardi's was all about the theater and people were eating at sardi's east all the way over on the east side how were they going to get to the theaters on time ingeniously i mean he tried in 1961 he brought over a british double-decker bus And that would go from the restaurant to the theater district in time for people to make the show. And actually, its first night um, was the opening night of Noel Coward's Sail Away. Coward himself was in the bus along with the star of the show, Elaine Stritch. So even with like a star-studded double-decker bus extravaganza, (laughs) this thing still didn't take off. No, finally he sold it in 1968. 
And just in time, of course, for that moment in the podcast where we hit the late 60s, 1970s, and everything falls apart section of the podcast. Now, I mean, he did try to keep the magic going here at the original Sardis. Those who work in the Broadway industries found other places, a little bit more trendy places to go, like Joe Allen's, for instance. Just two blocks away. Um, many other places around here sort of siphoned away some of the celebrity aspect. And then, of course, you know, the 70s Times Square element siphoned away the other part. It became associated not so much anymore with celebrity, Broadway professionalism, but with tourists by this time. Now, in 1979, something significant happened. Sardi Jr. donated all those caricatures to the New York Public Library. And so we'll talk about that in a second. Unfortunately, in 1985, Sardi ended up selling the entire restaurant, which seems unheard of by this time. He ended up selling it to some investors from Detroit. They were going to pull a Donald Trump. They were going to glam it up late 80s style. They were going to open a Sardi's Casino in Atlantic City. I mean, you can just imagine the horrificness of what this might have been. Fortunately, that never happened. But unfortunately, as a result of that, because of the way that they ran the business, Sardis closed entirely in June of 1990. Now, at that time, Vincent Sardi Jr. was able to get the restaurant back. And so in November of 1990, it was allowed to reopen. Sardi embraced this, the notion of the new Times Square because by the mid-1990s and the late 1990s... Sure, things of, are changing. Things are totally changing. The, quote, new Times Square, the Disneyfication of Times right. Square. I should mention that his father died in 1969 and Vincent Sardi Jr., just died very recently in 2007. When he died on that day, all the lights of Broadway dimmed their lights in his honor. Well, that was our, you know, lengthy but thorough tale of Sardis. <laughs> but I did want to say that Tom also had a very unique opportunity, and he actually got to see some of these original caricatures with his own eyes by visiting the New York Public Library. And this really makes me love the New York Public Library even more, and just another reason that we should all support it in any way that we can, because the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, which is located in the Lincoln Center complex, allows you to go in and to fill out a little form and then go through the Sardis archives. Of course, not just Sardis, but archives for all kinds of things related to performance in New York's history. So I did. I spent Saturday afternoon going through the Sardis archive of papers and clippings and then caricatures. They have eight boxes of caricatures that you can look at one caricature at a time in a sort of supervised area. But it really is kind of an amazing thing to hold on to those Alex Guard caricatures and see the sort of washed out colors and understand that the thing that you're holding had been dunked in Alex Guard's (laughs) bathtub. And done of those original celebrities and hung in the original Sardis during the 1930s. Now, the blog isn't as flashy, but on BoweryBoysPodcast.com, I will have some more images of Sardis and some of the past celebrities who have eaten there. So we've arrived at the end of our meal and the end of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.